shortages are hitting departments large and small across the country. As communities grapple with rising crime, officers are walking away from the job, leaving departments scrambling to recruit and retain its ranks. What's behind the shortage, and can the new generation of officers be convinced to wear the badge? Yes, it's a good job, it's an honorable job, but it's almost not worth it. And as final preparations for the New Year's Eve ball drop are underway tonight, we take a look back at the stories that define 2022, here on ABC News Live. Good evening, I'm Phil Lipoff, in for Lindsay Davis tonight. Thanks so much for streaming with us. As 2022 comes to a close, we may be closing in on answers to that unsolved murder of four college students in Idaho. A brutal crime that left a small community, a college community, and the victim's families reeling. Today, authorities in Pennsylvania arresting a 28-year-old man in connection with the killings. Brian Koberger, who you see there, taken into custody early Friday morning. He is facing four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary. The Washington State University graduate student was at his parents' home in this apartment complex in Chestnut Hill Township in the Poconos. Police telling ABC News they tracked him down in part through DNA technology. The violent deaths of the four victims shocked the small college community of Moscow, Idaho. As police combed their home for evidence and took in thousands of tips from around the nation. We have team coverage tonight. Kana Whitworth in Idaho and Matt Rivers in the Poconos neighborhood where the suspect was captured. We begin tonight with Kana from Moscow, Idaho. Nearly seven weeks after the stabbing deaths of four college students in Idaho, a break in the case that has gripped this nation. Police arresting a suspect, PhD student Brian Koberger. In conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murders of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. In a chilling twist, police say the alleged killer studies criminology at Washington State University. In Pullman, his apartment just over the state border, 15 minutes away from the crime scene. Investigators tracking Koberger 2,500 miles away to the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. Our Matt Rivers is there. So it's in this gated community just behind me that a SWAT team, including the FBI and Pennsylvania State Police, swooped into the suspect's parents' home around 2 a.m., taking him into custody. Sources telling ABC News the home was under surveillance for days. Our Philadelphia station, WPVI, talking to a neighbor who saw the arrest but didn't want to be identified. They had it in handcuffs. And we did so when the, the team took him out and put him in the car. That was very scary. Sources say police linked Koberger to the crime in part through DNA technology and tracked through his car. I will say that uh, we have found an Elantra. Investigators have been searching for a white Elantra that was spotted near the crime scene that night. Koberger graduated with a master's in criminal justice from DeSales University in Pennsylvania. Back in May, someone using the same name posted on Reddit, looking to recruit volunteers for a research project aimed at understanding how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. Tonight, the father of Kaylee Gonzalez telling us when this suspect gets to Idaho, he will be waiting. This guy's going to have to look me in my eyes multiple times and, uh, I'm going to be looking for the truth. Hi. Welcome back. Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan last seen at that food truck shortly before the murders. The two who were lifelong best friends were stabbed to death in the same bed. 
Their roommate, Zana Kernadel, and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, stabbed in another bedroom. Two other roommates on the first floor, surviving the carnage. Tonight, Ethan Chapin's family saying they were confident police would solve the crime. They say we're relieved this chapter is over because it provides a form of closure. However, it doesn't alter the outcome or alleviate the pain. We miss Ethan, and our family is forever changed. Did anyone do their chores today? Just weeks before the murder, this close group of friends were seen joking around in this TikTok video. The crime sending a jolt of fear through this town. Many students fled campus as police patrolled around the clock, and investigators faced intense pressure to solve the case. Kaylee's anguished parents have been pleading for the community to turn over any surveillance video. We just want this person found so bad. Since the beginning, police calling this a targeted attack without explaining why. And tonight, the motive remains a mystery. What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes. And um, I do believe our community is safe. Kena joins us now from Moscow. And Kena, you've been talking with the families of the victims. Do they have any idea if their children had a connection to this suspect? Right. The first question that people want an answer to, right, because police long said this was a targeted attack. And when I spoke with Kaylee Gonzalez's father earlier, he initially said, no, they don't know who he is, but they're digging into it. They are going to try to find out if there was a connection between him and their daughter or any of those people that lived in this house. What he told to me later in the day is that now that they have a name, they're searching differently. And he feels like he's coming up with some things that he's just not ready to share just yet, Phil. That's understandable. Police say, Kena, that uh, many of the details in this case won't be released until that affidavit they were talking about is unsealed. First, tell us why that is, and then uh, when do you think it is we will learn more about this? I feel like everybody's talking about Bitcoin these days. Do you have any? Yeah, thanks to Kena about this. So we heard from the county prosecutor, and he, what he explained to us is that this affidavit, this arrest affidavit, will not be unsealed until Koberger appears in court in Idaho. So first he has to be extradited from Pennsylvania, and if he doesn't do that on his own accord, the governor here in Idaho will have to get involved, and that could be a very lengthy process. But again, once he is here, he is charged, and he appears in court, they will unseal that affidavit, and we will learn a lot more details. Yeah, and that could be a little bit, I guess, because they were pretty tight-lipped at the, uh, the news conference that happened behind you. Um, this case obviously has gripped the Moscow community, fearing a killer on the loose, as so many did there. Did police say local residents now are safe tonight? You know, they talked about how this is a safe community. Yes, you should feel safe. But they added that you should also be on alert and that you should be vigilant. And we've sort of heard that along this investigation, Phil, that they're saying, you know what, maybe we should have been more vigilant all along. And that should sort of just be the new standard for people here in Moscow. All right, Kana Whitworth in Moscow, Idaho tonight. Thanks so much. ABC's Matt Rivers is in the Poconos where the suspect was arrested overnight. Matt, what are you hearing from members of the community there? Well, this was a shocking turn of events, if not only because we are really far away 
uh, from Idaho where these murders took place, but also because this is a pretty quiet part of northeastern Pennsylvania. This is a rural part of northeastern Pennsylvania in the Poconos. This is a place where many people actually come to vacation uh, for this long weekend. There's some cars behind me, people actually waiting to check into Airbnbs that are inside that gated community there behind me. We can't actually go into the community because it is gated, the property management company not allowing anyone without a reservation to go in. But it was behind those gates right there overnight, uh, Thursday into Friday morning, that it was a SWAT team making up members from the FBI, state police of Idaho and Pennsylvania, as well as local police officers from Moscow, Idaho, where those murders took place. They all executed that search warrant uh, for the 28-year-old suspect who was at his parents' house, uh, we're told, inside that gated community. They executed that search warrant around 2 a.m. this morning, uh, really in the overnight hours. It shocked this community, and now the suspect being held not too far from here where we are right now at the Monroe County Correctional Facility. That is where he will remain as these extradition proceedings move forward. Yeah, and Matt, a little bit more on that. Talk to me about the extradition process. We know that there's another hearing in Pennsylvania, what, on Tuesday? Uh, but when it comes to the extradition process, he could choose not to waive his right, or what happens? He could, he could lengthen this process out. Absolutely. He could, if he waives extradition, then it would go a lot faster. He would make his next appearance in front of the judge on Tuesday because this is a holiday weekend. So the next time he's going to be able to be, appear in front of a judge here in Pennsylvania would be on Tuesday. If the suspect chooses to waive extradition, he would be sent back to Idaho relatively quickly. However, if he wants to fight extradition, then the authorities in Idaho would have to put forward an extradition request through the governor's office in Idaho, and then that would come here to Pennsylvania, and there would be a lot more hearings if the suspect wants to fight extradition. So how this is going to play out over the next couple of days or even weeks or even months here in terms of how fast he will be sent back to Idaho to face criminal charges, that's an open question at this point. Right. Eventually, that is most likely where he will land to face the charges. Uh, Matt Rivers, thanks so much. Now to former President Trump's tax returns. A House committee today released six years of federal taxes, which show that Trump paid relatively little in the years before and during his presidency. So what's the former president saying about this tonight? Here's ABC's Mary Alice Parks. After years of legal battles and questions about former President Trump's personal finances, Tonight, House Democrats finally making public six years of his tax returns from 2015 to 2020, shedding new light on Trump's huge fluctuations in income, often reporting financial losses in the tens of millions. In 2016 and 2017, he paid just $750 in taxes, far below what an average teacher would pay. In his final year in office, Trump paid no income tax at all. Trump, unlike every other president since Nixon, refusing to voluntarily make his returns public, claiming he was under audit. Well, I'm not really saying tax returns because, as you know, they're under audit. But the committee found that not to be true. And the IRS, despite a mandatory rule that a president's taxes be reviewed, failing to audit Trump during his first two years in office. Any faith we might yet have that Trump was audited fully and fairly, let alone expeditiously, as the IRS manual requires, Oh, that's out the window. The committee also identifying a number of red flags they think warrant examination. Trump had multiple foreign bank accounts, including in China. He also paid foreign taxes while in office and claimed foreign tax credits. And he made several loans to his children. Trump responding today saying the documents show, quote, how proudly successful I have been and how I have been able to use depreciation and various other tax deductions.
Mary Alice Parks joins me now. Mary Alice, there is another headline I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, coming from Washington tonight. The January 6th committee has released new transcripts. What more are we learning about the interviews with some key witnesses there? Yeah, what was from their interview with Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas from the Supreme Court. She said that she regretted texting with people in Trump's White House after the election. She claimed that her husband did not know that she was communicating with them. But she did say that she hoped Trump would challenge the election. And she talked about being there on the mall for that rally on January 6th. Now, of course, many critics have said that given her communications with people in Trump's White House, Justice Clarence Thomas should have recused himself from Trump-related cases. Phil. Mary Alice Parks, thank you. For more on this, I'm joined now by ABC News contributor Khan Nawadea, a former federal prosecutor, Southern District of New York. Khan, thanks for joining us. We have talked about this particular issue several times. Uh, we're getting a closer look at the details now that the, the committee has released the, the full tax returns. Uh, anything that you've seen so far that could open the president up to a future prosecution? Uh, absolutely nothing I've seen so far uh, leads me to think that there's going to be any criminal exposure for criminal tax violations from what's been reported. Um, a lot of the things uh, that have been reported maybe expose the former president to an audit or a civil uh, proceeding, but nothing criminal. We should note that the House Committee releasing these returns publicly, but others have had portions of the president's tax, the former president's tax returns for other investigations, right? And then that's absolutely right. Um, and that's another reason why I don't think there will be any criminal prosecution, at least for tax violations. Um, you're absolutely right, Phil. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office, as well as the Manhattan DA's office, they fought long and hard, right. went to the Supreme Court to get these tax returns. They've had them and they've never brought any charges against uh, the former president for any criminal tax violations. And this, look, this is an issue. A lot of people in this country felt if you're going to run for president, we should be able to see your tax returns, especially if you're a businessman like the former president who had business all over the world. He chose not to do that. Now these tax returns are out there. I think in a couple of years, 16, 17, he paid something like $750 a year. In 2020, it looks like he paid nothing. Um, is this more of a political issue for him? than a legal issue? I think that's absolutely right. Um, and the reason it's not a legal issue is that there are a myriad of tax avoidance uh, methods that people can use that are perfectly legal to avoid tax. And again, uh, his core supporters will think this is a, you know nothing, and some of the people in this country will say, see, and none of it will really matter legally, as you're saying, but politically, I mean, he is a candidate for president, so we'll, we'll see what happens next. That's right. nowadays. Thanks so much. Really do appreciate it. Thank you. Some relief today after that disastrous holiday travel meltdown. Southwest Airlines appears to be back on track. ABC's Alex Perez with more. Tonight, Southwest Airlines' operational reset appears to be working. All but a few dozen flights taking off today. The airline canceling nearly 16,000 flights in recent days. CEO Bob Jordan telling Wit on GMA. There's just no way almost to apologize enough because we love our customers, we love our people, and we really impacted their plans. Amy Sethman and her family plan to visit relatives for Christmas. Their flight from Denver to Seattle canceled after they boarded. Their rebooked flight canceled too. We're not going to get those memories back. We're not going to get that time spent with family back. Those cancellations, she says, cost her family about $2,500 in out-of-pocket expenses. Sethman submitting her reimbursement claim today. 
This as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says his department has received thousands of complaints. We will penalize Southwest as we would any airline if they fail to meet what is required of them to take care of passengers. Jordan pledging Southwest will make good on this issue and adding... There'll be a lot of lessons learned in terms of what we can do to make sure that this never happens again, because this needs to never happen again. All right, Alex joins me now from Chicago. And Alex, did Southwest indicate what it plans to do to prevent this kind of disaster coming up in the future? I mean, we heard the CEO there at the end of your story say they plan to do that, but do they have any plans in place? Yeah, Phil, one of the main things they say they plan to do is speed up their efforts, double down on their efforts to modernize their IT and other systems in hopes of preventing something like this in the future. Phil? All right, Alex Perez, thank you. We've been tracking a storm system moving across the country all week long, but as we head into the new year, this system will bring some nice warmth along with it as well. Our Danielle Breezy has the forecast for us. In Times Square tonight, Danielle, good to see you. What can we expect? Good to see you, Phil. Yes, we are tracking two systems that could bring rain just in time for New Year's Eve. Let's take you to that first system here, and you're going to see that that rain is going to spread to the east. It is going to bring a lot of rain to the north and east, and of course in Buffalo, where they saw all that snow, it could lead to flooding and also ice jams. Now, I will tell you, it will be pretty wet during New Year's Eve day and into the night around New York City, but we're hoping that that rain will clear just in time for midnight as the ball drops. Of course, then we're watching a secondary system. This one has 13 states under storm alerts as an atmospheric river is going to slam the west coast. Now the timing on this one looks to bring heavy rain tonight into New Year's Eve morning for the Bay Area. Two to three to four inches of rain not out of the question. Then that's going to shift farther to the south for New Year's Eve night bringing a lot of rain to LA. You can see rain there for your New Year's Eve plans. Not to mention two to five feet of snow not out of the question in the mountains. Now that same storm system is going to be pushing across the country bringing the severe weather to the south early this week, and we're going to be watching it very closely. Phil? I know you will. Danielle Breezy, always a pleasure to see you. Have a great new year. <laughs> Good to see you. New revelations today about Representative-elect George Santos's lies and fabrications. Now questions about how he spent campaign funds. He's been caught in a string of falsehoods about his education, his family, and his work history. Tonight, new questions about how Congressman-elect George Santos spent his campaign's money. Between June and September, filings show the Santos campaign spent $10,000 in rent for a home on Long Island. The expenditure report said it was for apartment rental for staff, but a neighbor told the New York Times Santos had been living there for months, despite registering to vote at an address in Queens. The campaign spent more than $43,000 on air travel, 30000 on hotels. Those amounts raising eyebrows for someone running to represent a small district on Long Island. His lawyer defended the expenditures as proper, but four different law enforcement agencies are now taking a look. Santos is telling local leaders he will serve out his term and will not run for re-election. The GOP chairman in his district said he wouldn't support Santos anyway, but he expressed no objection to Santos taking office next week. And Aaron joins me now. Aaron, while most Republicans may be staying quiet on this matter so far, yet another Democrat lawmaker spoke out today. Uh, who was it and what did he say? This is Congressman Richie Torres, a soon-to-be colleague of George Santos here in New York. And he said he wants to introduce a bill in the new Congress to make it illegal for candidates to lie on their biographies, make them disclose their military history, their educational history, their work history, 
and do so truthfully. Phil, he said he'd call it the Santos Act. Hmm. Makes you wonder if it would pass, too. All right, Aaron Katursky, thank you. When we come back, an NFL quarterback jumping into action when he spots a helicopter crash in the water. And tributes from millions around the world continue to pour in for Soccer King Pelé. But first, the bidding wars in cities across the country for police officers. As violent crime rises in some parts of the nation, they're struggling to keep law enforcement jobs filled. We're going to take a look at why so many officers are leaving the badge behind. This is ABC News Live. The crushing families. are in a bidding war for new officers, offering bonuses and perks, just trying to, to recruit the next generation. As many lifelong first responders are leaving the profession, it's leading to significant shortages impacting cities already dealing with increases in violent crime. ABC's Jay O'Brien looks into why so many cops are walking away from the job. All Anthony Carapucci ever wanted to be was a cop. An Afghanistan war veteran, the son of two police officers, public service felt like his calling. Policing is essentially really all I know. You know, I love the job. But in September, after almost a decade with the Philadelphia Police Department, he quit. Thank you for doing this. And called us after turning in his gun and badge, feeling burnt out. It was um, kind of heartbreaking in a sense. I'm not going to lie. You know, cause it's really everything that I knew, everything that I loved. Yes, it's a good job. It's an honorable job. It's almost not worth it. Philadelphia, like other major American cities, is seeing an exodus of police officers. Los Angeles is down at least 500 cops. New Orleans, more than 300 officers short from a few years ago. And in Wisconsin this year, the entire state reached a record low for police officers. But in the city of Brotherly Love, Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw is facing a shortage of 600 officers, roughly 10% of the force's full strength, nearly the same number of cops out on disability. How long until your staffing levels are critical? It's critical now. It's already critical. Uh, it was critical a year ago. Bracing for a crushing wave of upcoming officer retirements, a city report also found Outlaw's team needs to triple its recruitment over the next three years to avoid even worse shortages. You can only eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? We're going to be realistic about that. And in order, when, look, look at those numbers. That took time to get here. It sounds like you're saying that your numbers of officers, the shortages you face, are going to get worse before they get better. I think so. You've had homicides right in this neighborhood. Right, 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 right in the corner, yeah. Jamal Johnson, an anti-violence activist, told us he went from protesting police brutality a few years ago to pleading for more cops on the streets to stop the current surge of violence. Philadelphia saw a record-breaking 562 homicides last year, upwards of 460 people murdered so far this year. At this intersection Johnson walked us to, one man was shot 16 times in October. We've been out here for half hour haven't seen a single police officer right that's not unusual that's common not unusual there used to be a police car locals told us frequently parked right out front of nuvo's hair salon but it hasn't been there for months what was last time you saw a police officer out here 
There's here. And inside, Kenitra Scott and Talon Botino say that's when this intersection turned it's most dangerous. When the police were removed from parking out front here, is that when the killing started to pick up on that corner? Yes, because since last year, all the killings started through the summer till now. Outlaw says her department is still responding quickly to priority calls like murders and shootings. But patrolling and proactive policing, stopping crimes before they occur, are often some of the first tasks put on pause when a department's ranks dip. It seems like you're leading a department that's just getting burned out. I think many of us are. Many of us are. Across and the country. Across the country. This is not unique to Philadelphia. A recent survey of law enforcement leaders found over half of agencies in the U.S. have fewer officers than they did four or five years ago. And nearly three out of every four departments warned their number of new applicants dropped off significantly over that same period. In Virginia. Batman, come out now. You're going to get bit. At the Fairfax County Criminal Justice Academy. Oh, boy, buddy. Their numbers have been in steady decline for years. In 2018, our average class size was in the 50s. Uh, now our average class size starts in the 30s. This police department's been around since 1940. And it's never had the vacancy rate that, that we have now, in spite of us doing more on the recruiting and retention end than we've ever done before. Fairfax County Police Chief Kevin Davis says exit interviews show officers are leaving because they're not feeling valued and think they can find better opportunities elsewhere. They're going into IT, they're going into sales, they're, they're teaching. We've even had a personal leave to go be a farmer. Many cops across the country now forced to work punishing mandatory overtime to make up for big shortages, and some discouraged by how they're treated, including hearing phrases like defund the police. I know that the sentiment behind defund the police is police better, and police better, particularly in black and brown communities. A 24-year-old cop who hasn't lived very long sees that phrase as a uh, anti-police rhetoric. And, and it makes them feel a certain way, and it doesn't make them feel very good. There are those that would say law enforcement's undermined its, its own credibility. What's your response to that? But those are the same people that will call 911 and will file a complaint if we don't get there quickly enough. But in this great resignation where millions, including cops, are leaving lifelong jobs, the At clock is ticking. Does he pose a threat? To convince millennials and even Gen Z that police work is worth it. Examine your heart. Do you want to serve? Do you want to make your community better and your family safer and your neighbors safer and your friends safer in fairfax because their applicant pool is smaller the academy is now focused on outreach to the most dedicated of potential recruits like mitra mtazian she drives three hours both ways every day to attend this academy thank you ma'am inspired by the call to serve i couldn't see myself doing anything else but back in philadelphia i can't imagine being more worried about law enforcement than I am right now. John Hoyt with the city's police union says the sons and daughters of cops, many of whom used to jump at the chance to enter the family business, now are not. The problem is those mothers and fathers that are current police officers or retired are saying don't go into the business. Right now, Commissioner Outlaw's task, she believes, is to convince the Philadelphia community that policing is still a trusted profession under pressure to grow her ranks before too many cops leave for good. I've always been optimistic. Law enforcement has been around for how many years now? I mean, if... And you don't think it's going anywhere? No. No. 
All right, Jay, thank you for that. Still ahead, how concerned should you be about the spike in flu activity today compared to, say, the last decade? Mega Millions is still up for grabs. We're going to tell you how much money could be yours or mine. I feel particularly lucky about this one. And how many crystals and lights are needed for the sparkling kaleidoscope that is the New Year's Eve ball? We're going to let you know by the numbers. But first, our tweet of the day. Happy birthday to one of the best to ever do it. NBA great LeBron James. With so much it's I, I did a little research myself and found out that he had a, a, a white Kia, or a, he had a Kia, a 2013 Kia. Um, it's spinning. Okay, yeah, that's at their end. They're trying to get it ready. Uh, so they've had him in the site, in their sights, in their radar. Um, and today's just a culmination of that. So great work. Uh, yeah, Akia Forte. Thank you. This may be an overload on their uh, on the system. <laughs> Still nothing. I'm talking to my Karen on the backside here. Um, yeah, uh, just oddities, right? You, uh, I, I tell you, when you're done here today. Go, go watch that real fast clip I put together of the highlights of Ann and uh, Dr. Bricado. I mean, he absolutely nailed it. Um, and uh, that's why he's the best in the, in the business. I'm just going to say up front, don't expect a whole bunch. Thank you for coming today. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I want to personally thank these agencies for their assistance this case. Koberger resides in Pullman, Washington, and is a graduate student at Washington State University. We will provide as much information as we can about the extradition to Idaho and the criminal process. However, due to Idaho state law, we are limited in what information we can release today until Koberger has been has his initial appearance in Idaho court. I want to express my appreciation for our local community, people of Idaho and those throughout our nation who provided information to help us investigate these murders has been very impressive. We've received over 19,000 tips and we've conducted over 300 interviews. To recap this case, on the evening of November 12th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home 
at about 1.56 a.m. after visiting a local bar and street food vendor. Ethan and Zanna were at the Sigma Chi house before arriving home around 1.45 a.m. The two surviving roommates had also been in the community but returned around 1 a.m. On the morning of November 13th, a 911 call was made at 11.58 a.m. reporting an unconscious person at the residence. The call came in, the call came from inside the home from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones. Moscow police responded and found two victims on the second floor and two victims on the third floor. On November 17th, autopsies were conducted and the Latok County coroner confirmed the identity of the four victims. The cause and manner of death was homicide by stabbing. Some had defensive wounds and each had multiple uh, each had been stabbed multiple times. These murders have shaken our community and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. This was a very complex and extensive case. We developed a clear picture over time and we stand assured that the work was not the work is not done, but be assured the work is not done. This is just started. Since November, we have remained laser focused on pursuing, pursuing every lead in our pursuit of justice for the victims and their families. I recognize the frustration with the lack of information that's been released. However, providing any details in this criminal investigation might have tainted the upcoming criminal prosecution or alerted the suspect of our progress. We will continue to provide as much information as we can as the process moves forward. Today, I want to specifically thank our dedicated Moscow Police Department detectives, patrol officers, the Idaho State detectives, the Idaho State troopers, and their crime lab technicians and scientists and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for the resources and personnel to conduct this massive investigation. It was the dedication of them and the persistence and the numerous hours that led to an arrest. Fortunately, these highly skilled people worked together as a cohesive team to solve this case. I also want to thank our community and the nation. Over the past six weeks, I've been continually reminded of how much our community cares. Locally, public support has been exceptional with kind words, food for investigators, and letters of support. You will never know how much your words of encouragement help us through these trying times. I appreciate each of you and each of your kindness. Agencies and individuals from across the nation have reached out to us to express their support to this department. I'm reminded our Moscow community, our families and the nation has been impacted by this daily. Finally, I do wanna thank our media partners for the help. You kept this in the uh, news. You helped us with tips. You kept things going and we truly appreciate that. And you are the product of those 19,000 tips that we received, which is an impressive number.
like to uh, invite Bill Thompson, the county prosecutor, up at this time. Good afternoon, folks. My name is Bill Thompson. I'm the Lake County prosecutor. And it's sad to be here, but happy to be here at the same time. As Chief Fry indicated, um, a criminal complaint was filed yesterday here in Lake County charging the defendant, Mr. Kohlberger, with four counts of first-degree murder, in addition to felony burglary, which involves entering the residence with the intent to commit the crime of murder. Mr. Kohlberger, and let me preface, there is a pending case now in court, and I and my office and the investigators have to live with the restrictions that our Supreme Court places on pretrial publicity. That said, I promise you we will share with you through the court process or otherwise, whatever we are allowed to. I just appreciate your patience on that. The uh, factual basis for the charges are summarized in what's called a probable cause affidavit that is on file with the court. According to the rules of the Idaho Supreme Court, that is sealed until Mr. Kohlberger is physically back in Latah County and has been served with the Idaho arrest warrant. At that time, we expect that, that affidavit will be available to you so you can share the true facts with all of your readers and your watchers and your listeners uh, and all the people who are interested and really need to know what's going on. So please have patience with us on that. Uh, we hope to get that to you as soon as we can. As far as Mr. Kohlberger, I can share with you that he is a graduate student at Washington State University and has an apartment residence over at Pullman. He has had an initial appearance front of a judge in Pennsylvania. He is being held without bond, and the warrant from our magistrate judge here also provides for no bond. We understand that he's scheduled to be back in court in Pennsylvania next Tuesday afternoon, and that a public defender has been appointed for him there. The process at this point is since he was arrested in another state, he has the opportunity to either waive extradition and return voluntarily to the state of Idaho, or if he prefers not to waive extradition, then we will initiate extradition proceedings through our governor's office. If we do that, it can take a while for him to get here. So again, I'm asking for your patience and understand that's just the way the system works. Once he gets here, uh, he'll have an initial appearance with our magistrate. He'll deal with issues such as making sure counselors uh, competent counsel is representing him, and the case will be scheduled for further hearings. Your primary source of factual information is going to be the court record, because that's what the Supreme Court says uh, we need to refer you to. So please pay attention to what's going on in court and have people there to watch and hear what's being said. Uh, as, as an attorney, myself and my office, we are limited on what we are allowed by the courts to say outside of the courtroom. Please just work with us. Finally, as the chief indicated, this is not the end of this investigation. In fact, this is a new beginning. We all now know the name of the person who has been charged with these offenses. Please get that information out there. Please ask the public, anyone who knows about this individual, to come forward, call the tip line, Report anything you know about him to help the investigators and eventually our office and the court system understand fully everything there is to know about not only the individual, but what happened and why. 
Next, I'll introduce Colonel Ked Wells from the Idaho State Police. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. My name is Kedrick Wills. I serve as a director of the Idaho State Police and certainly want to express our appreciation for your attendance here today. These tragic murders took four young, vibrant lives from our community. Nothing we do can bring them back. The only thing that we can do in law enforcement to honor their memories that we know of is to bring this to a successful conclusion. This has been a very difficult time for the families, the university, the community, and the state of Idaho. However, it is also proven that communities come together in tough times. Certainly appreciate the support of the local community and our national audience that has been following us as we've worked, our investigators have worked through this case. I'm thankful also to you, the media partners, who have helped keep this case in the forefront that generates the tips and continues, will, we hope will continue to generate information that will help us to a conclusion of this proceeding. I'd like to express our appreciation on behalf of the Idaho State Police to Chief Fry, his leadership and the entire Moscow Police Department for the way that they handled this from the very beginning. He directed the right people to the right, right positions that led us to this conclusion today. I've had the utmost confidence in this investigation and in Chief Fry as well as in Mr. Bill Thompson and the Latok County Prosecutor's Office who've been a great partner throughout this. Nothing has deterred the commitment of the investigators who've worked on this case regardless of the organization they represent. It's been very trying and very difficult as we know, as you know, that it has been on those investigators as they do the tedious work that they're so good at doing. The partnerships is what's led here as well. The partnerships between Moscow Police Department, the, I'd like to express our appreciation with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, specifically the special agent in charge out of the Salt Lake City Division, Dennis Rice, and also what the work that happened in the last 24 hours in, in Pennsylvania with the arrest with the Pennsylvania State Police and Colonel Evanchik with the Pennsylvania State Police. We appreciate what they've done across the nation to help us as well. As Bill shared, this investigation is far from over. In fact, I appreciate what he shared, that this is not an ending, but rather a new beginning. The difference now is, as he shared, that we are dictated what information we can share by the court process and by laws in our state of Idaho. And so we will share, as he shared, um, Mr. Thompson uh, is absolutely committed to share everything he can share through the court process. We've got to make sure that we don't get in front of that process. And uh, we really appreciate, deeply appreciate everybody's support here. The relationships that were forged here and the partnerships that were forged have led to this. And based on that is why we're here today. And we continue to believe that the best way we can honor these four lives that have been taken is to make sure that we have a successful outcome here. One of the partnerships that's been forged throughout this is a partnership with the University of Idaho. And on that, I'd like to introduce the president of the University of Idaho, Mr. Scott Green. Thank you, good afternoon, Scott Green, um, president of the University of Idaho. Today's news and arrest is a welcome one. It's a relief to our university, our community, and our extended Vandal family. The outpouring of support over the past six weeks helped sustain us during the most trying time. It provided the strength. It helped us navigate the international scrutiny visited on our students and employees. We are truly thankful for the compassion and acts of kindness shown to our community. 
kindness is contagious and provided the light that reclaimed ground lost to evil and darkness. We first want to acknowledge and thank Governor Little for the early promise of financial support that enabled the university to secure our campus and focus on helping our students and our employees in the wake of the crimes. We also appreciate the Idaho State Police and the highly visible security presence that brought comfort and calm to a community shocked and confused by the senseless crimes. We never lost faith that this case would be solved and are grateful for the hard work of the Moscow Police Department and their law enforcement partners. Vast and committed FBI resources brought important expertise to this complex case. Across the board, dedicated, highly competent personnel worked this case to arrest. This crime has nevertheless left the mark on our university, our community, and our state. While we cannot bring back Maddie, Kaylee, Zaina, and Ethan, we can thoughtfully and purposefully carry their legacy forward in the work that we do. Our students come first, and that was proven each and every day of this investigation. We are committed to safely delivering college town atmosphere, campus experience, and high-touch quality education for which the University of Idaho is known. With time, we will heal. We will move forward together, and we will remain family strong. With that, I'd like to turn it back over to Chief Fry. Now we will open the floor to questions. However, I want to remind everyone, as Prosecutor Bill Thompson explained, any factual information regarding the arrest of Kohlberger is currently sealed per Idaho law and will not be released until he has appeared in an Idaho court. Please formulate your questions accordingly. I recognize there are a lot of questions and I will try to answer as many of them as I can. Lauren Patterson, uh, Northwest Public Broadcasting, Spokane Public Radio. I realize the records are sealed. I guess I'm not too familiar with how it works, but can you tell us what tip, what lead, what piece of evidence really led you all the way from Idaho to the suspects in Pennsylvania? As I've said in the past, that's part of our investigation, and uh, we won't be releasing that this time. We, we will have those answers. We'll have them um, as soon as we can um, make those available. Then a quick follow-up and a two-parter. Is our community safe? Or is law enforcement still on the search for other suspects who might be involved in this attack? What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes. And um, I do believe our community is safe. But we still need to be vigilant, right? We still have talked about this in the past. We always need to be aware of our surroundings and make sure that uh, we're aware of what's going on. How soon into the investigation did police and law enforcement begin to spot Mr. Koberger as a potential suspect? And a follow-up, how many tips, if you can say, were specifically related to Mr. Koberger? Um, to the tip part, honestly, I can't answer that question, so I'm not even going to speculate on that. On the other part, that's part of our investigation, and it will come out. Um, I'd like the mic to please come right over here. Thank you. Dana Griffin with NBC News. 
Can you confirm that Kohlberger asked whether or not anyone else had been arrested when he was in custody? I cannot confirm that, or I'm not sure um, of that information, but that would still be a part of our investigation. Did CODIS initially return any hits on this guy? That's still part of our investigation. Um, that will come out. If we could get somebody over here, please. And then one final question. Is there any message to the online sleuths who slandered and harassed people who they believe were responsible? There was a lot of speculation going on, and we've always said from the very beginning that we're the official uh, message that comes out and to pay attention to what we're putting out there to the press. I'm Nancy Liu with News Nation, and we were over at the house this morning. <laughs>